I'm Dan Diamond. This is Pulse Check. And on today's show, we're going to talk with someone who is right in the middle of one of the most important. These tents you see here meant to hold the children Trump has separated from their fathers and mothers stand as today's American reality. Emotional. Trump administration officials have been sending babies and other young children. Controversial policies of President Trump's nearly two years in office. There are still several hundred more children separated from their parents at the border and still no clear answer on when or how they will be reunited. Summer 2018's zero-tolerance border policy that led to thousands of migrant families being separated. It's been about six months since the height of the crisis. Not all families have been reunited. House Democrats have already announced hearings into the Trump administration's policy. On today's show, you'll hear from Chris Meekins, a Trump appointee who's just left Akshikshas after helping lead the work to reunite families. I want to be clear, Meekins and Akshikshas didn't set the policy, but the agency was responsible for carrying out a part of it, and Meekins, who normally worked on issues like biodefense and hurricane safety, knows better than most what happened and what went wrong. You'll hear from Chris in a moment, but first a reminder, if you like Pulse Check, you can help us by reviewing the show, rating it on your favorite podcast app, and sending suggestions to me. I'm at ddiamond at politico.com by email. And now, here's my interview with Chris Meekins. Chris Meekins, welcome to Politico Pulse Check. Thanks, Dan. You were chief of staff for the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response, better known as ASPR, where you were involved in biomedical research, hurricane response. All the stuff that ASPR normally does normally happens behind the scenes, and we are going to get to that. But you were in the spotlight last year because you were a top official involved in the frantic HHS effort to reunite thousands of migrant families at the Trump administration separated at the border. At the time, there was bipartisan outrage. I would bet that many people listening to this now remain disgusted. Do you understand that anger? Well, first, let me say um, I'm no longer at HHS, so the opinions I express are those only of my own and do not necessarily reflect the you know management of HHS or the Trump administration. You just left HHS. Things. I just left HHS. Um, so I want to just start off and saying that, yeah, I mean, I can completely understand why people are upset about it. My personal view was I think it's a ill-fated policy that was devised by Jeff Sessions and Stephen Miller. I think that it's unconscionable to do it in this way. But at the end of the day, that my job was not to make the policy. I did not have a role in the policy. HHS didn't have the role in the policy. And one thing that I think sometimes gets uh, one thing that I think sometimes gets misportrayed is that HHS did not separate kids. Recently in a tweet that you sent out, you said HHS family separations is one of the things Congress is going to look into. HHS didn't separate families. And that's a really important distinction to make because I think a lot of folks in the media assume that we were the ones ripping kids from their parents when we weren't. At the end of the day, when a kid becomes unaccompanied, which is a determination that has historically been made by DHS through interpretations of DOJ policies, then they come to HHS for care. And I think the care that HHS has provided has been really positive for these kids in providing them meals, education, um, recreation time. Uh, these shelters really care for these kids. There have been reports, though, that these shelters have not always kept track of the kids, that the kids and their parents were having problems getting reunited. There have been kids who have gotten sick or ill in custody. Well, I think that, first off, we've known where every kid was at any given time. So we, these shelters are not... Um, 
jails, right? There's not barbed wire fences around the outside of them. A kid can theoretically try to escape if they want to and go off, and then we do the normal process of finding them. But at any given time, we knew exactly where those kids were. So this idea that we didn't know where the kids were is just factually inaccurate. I've heard your voice before on conference calls with reporters. I repeatedly requested sit-down interviews with you and your, your colleagues. I had so many questions when this was unfolding last summer. was denied every time. Why are you doing this interview now? That's a great question. I think at the end of the day, there were some things. My name was associated with this separation policy, and it was a policy that I personally disagreed with. But I think it's important to understand what HHS's role was. And I think a lot of the reporting that went out there um, kind of missed that. HHS did not separate kids, period. This was a DOJ policy that DHS was trying to figure out how to implement. Our job is to take care of kids. And we were brought in at Asper, which was not why I joined HHS, but we were brought in to look for a way to get those kids back with their parents as quickly and as safely as possible. In most instances, you know, of the 2,500-ish kids that were separated during the period of time that the court looked at it, they were still in HHS's care. There was um, the vast majority of them were parents that just wanted to be back with their kids and deserved to be back with their kids. There were some, less than 100-ish, where we found out they weren't parents. They may have been a part of human smuggling. They could have been child abusers. They could have been rapists. And I say could have. They actually were and had been charged with those things or been convicted of those things. So we wouldn't have wanted to put those kids back together with those individuals. There are going to be some listeners who remember every twist and turn of this crisis in, in great detail. There are other listeners who probably haven't thought about this in some time. So let's start with how this unfolded in 2018. Attorney General Jeff Sessions announced the family separation policy in April 2018, the two key departments, as, as you've gotten to, DHS, Homeland Security, which maintains the border and immigration, was involved in separating the families, and then HHS, which has the refugee office and took custody of the separated children. And what you're saying, Chris, when, when you first got involved, this was several months later, this was when ASPR, uh, the Preparedness and Response Office, was tapped in late June to come in and help put the families back together. Yes. Um, bottom line was the Office of Refugee Resettlement had handled the situation up till uh, late June. Our tasking was not to come in and run OR. They're fantastic career staff to care about these unaccompanied kids that are in their care, do great work over there. Um, we were asked to come in because there was something that was just going to surpass what their capabilities were. They had never, they didn't have the bandwidth to be able to care for the kids, plus find a way to get kids from dozens and dozens, probably more than 100 locations across the country, identify their parents and get them back together with their parents. Because one thing we found was that DHS um, did not do a good job with providing to OR information on who the parents of the separated kids were. Okay, so translate that for me. When you say DHS did not do a good job of providing that information, were they providing the information at all about who these parents were? In some instances, they were providing information, but in most, I'll tell you this, there were more than 60 different data sets that we had to come through to be able to identify which parents were separated. And these are data sets like dates of birth? like No, where... these are different systems that existed within DHS. It was different data sets that they would send over to us as we looked for family unit numbers. We did an entire process. It was really similar to a forensic data analysis by our team at ASPR in collaboration with ORR, going through the ORR database, but then going through all the different ICE databases. 
and looking at, okay, which kids are actually separated, which ones are not. Even the information the DHS did provide, I know this because I think uh, there were stories that were run about the secretary himself reviewing some of the case file records. And I was there with him in the secretary's operations center as we had lines of computers set up and we were reviewing these files. And in one of the files that we had, it said, oh, this one's a separated kid at the top, you know, separated from their parent. But then in the field's notes, the Customs and Border Patrol agent said, yeah, this kid's actually not separated. This guy admitted to being, you know, just an uncle or whatever else. And so you had conflicting data even in what they gave us at that point. So what you're saying is there was no master list. There was all of these different data sets that HHS was looking through that the Border Patrol folks were sending over. And there was at times misleading information about these families. How does this possibly happen in the year 2018? How do families get separated and not have this be better tracked? Um, I was brought into the situation after the separations had already occurred. So I can't go back and tell you how this didn't happen. What I can tell you is what wasn't happening at the time. And one of the changes we implemented whenever we came in, because we were not sure whether DHS was going to try to re-separate or what was going to happen going forward, was we inserted into the portal, which is the OR database that ACF uses, a checkbox. Very simple. ACF, check. ACF, the Administration for Children and Families, the part of HHS. Whichever sees the OR program. And so we insert it in a checkbox, and literally every Customs and Border Patrol agent says if they're separated, even if they're separated for cause, because separations occur historically whenever a parent comes across and they've got a record of child abuse or they have charges of rape or there's some reason a um, appropriate cause for separation, a kid would still be separated. And that's historically been the case. It was only DOJ's new policy that resulted in the increased number of separations. So going forward, they at least have a checkbox that CBP is supposed to click on in the portal when they input the information uh, on the children to OR. There is a dispute over who inside the administration even knew that there was a plan to separate families at the border. Now, you said this was driven by former Attorney General Jeff Sessions, Stephen Miller, the White House advisor who has has helped lead immigration policy. Uh, Sessions has said that he informed the president of the plan before announcing the policy. Chief of Staff John Kelly has said that's not true. Based on what you saw on the ground, was HHS aware and ready to implement the policy when it was announced? I didn't spend a lot of time going back and figuring out how things came to be in a given situation. When you're asked to identify kids that are separated and they can't even tell you which ones they are initially, and you have a court-ordered deadline of less than 30 days to get them back with your parents, it's the entire focus you have is on how do I get these kids back as quickly as possible so my secretary is not held in contempt of court. And our secretary made it very clear to us that our job was to figure out a way to identify those kids, make sure that the parents are actually the parents and putting them back together with their parents as quickly as is humanly possible. But surely there's been some sort of root cause analysis in the intervening months to figure out what went wrong in the first place. I can understand when the deadlines hang over your head, okay, maybe maybe no blame then, but retrospectively, some lessons have to have emerged over who dropped the ball. Asper's not in charge of the program. Asper went, we went from literally taking care of these, uh, reuniting these parents with their kids to uh, dealing with multiple hurricanes this year. 
simultaneous hurricanes. We literally had people deployed from Saipan to Puerto Rico at one point when a storm looked like it was there, as well as in eastern North Carolina. So I'm sure someone has in the department, and I suspect there'll be an inspector general's report that looks into all of those things about who knows what when. Um, I'm not included in it. You mentioned that court order deadline. There was a federal judge who ordered that HHS and DHS reunify families essentially as promptly as possible, within a month, thousands of families. The Trump administration wanted to follow a process that included steps like DNA testing. And in early July, you testified to the court that you were worried that speeding up the process would put kids at risk. The ACLU and others accused the administration of slow walking, of not being ready and just looking for a way to buy time. And the judge was angry with you, Chris. He, he put out uh, a, a statement, uh, quote, it is clear from Mr. Meekin's declaration that HHS either does not understand the court's orders or is acting in defiance of them, is what that judge wrote at the time. Six months later, do we know if any children were harmed because HHS was ordered to speed up the process? What we know is that so at the time, the judge actually adjusted his ruling after we put in that declaration. So the judge's initial ruling was put them back together, period. We don't care whether they're the parents or not. Just put them back together, period. And what we found was, thankfully, after that, we were able to get Jonathan White, who's fantastic, commander, career staffer, commander in the Public Health Service Corps that was an ASPR employee but had previously been at OR. Uh, he was able to go out and walk the judge through what we had proposed to be an abbreviated process that still would be able to ensure child safety, and the judge embraced that process. Had we done what the judge initially told us, we would have put 100 kids back together with people that either would have caused them harm or weren't their parents, and that would have been unacceptable. So the purpose of the declaration was to really make clear to the judge exactly what he was saying because it was, at least in our opinion, in my opinion, that he didn't appreciate the seriousness of the situation and the purpose behind these additional checks that are put in place. Now, like I said, the vast majority of these people were good parents that wanted to be with their kid. You know, we're talking less than 99.5% of them were separated from a kid wrongly and should have been put back together. And we did that. But there were some, not a lot, there were some where uh, the kids would have been harmed to go back with those individuals. And we weren't going to do that. You were hired by the Trump administration to clean up healthcare emergencies. Yes or no, did the Trump administration create a healthcare emergency by forcibly separating thousands of children from their families? Uh, I was hired by uh, the guy who was going to become the next assistant secretary for preparedness and response, Bob Cadlick, and by then secretary Tom Price, uh, to get our preparedness and response organization in a better position. That's why I came into the organization, why I came in. Did they create a public health emergency for that? I, I don't believe they did in that instance, no. There is a doctor at Johns Hopkins, and anytime I've mentioned Secretary Azar on Twitter, this doctor responds months later by calling for Azar to resign over the migrant crisis. That doctor is not the only one who's made that suggestion. Democrats and others have, have issued similar calls. I know you can't speak for the secretary, but you can speak for yourself. When the news came out about family separation, why not resign rather than work for an administration that was separating children from their parents? Administrations are very big. The job I had day to day within the uh, administration was to focus on how do we ensure the U.S. is prepared to respond to a public health emergency. 
And the reality was when we came in, we weren't prepared. So we had to figure out a way to implement new response structure. We had to figure out a way to look at the biodefense threats that exist in the world, which was really my day-to-day job. You had chemical weapons being used in Syria. You had Russians poisoning people in the UK. And the question is, if that were to happen on our homeland, would we be ready? My job was focused on our national security, which is a part of HHS that a lot of people don't pay attention to. That's why I came into the administration, because I knew that we weren't ready for some of the big issues uh, that could be presented to us and some of the real threats that exist. So that's why I was there. And that's what I was doing. I got brought into there are a lot of things that happened in other departments that I may disagree with from a policy perspective. And I'm sure people who worked in the Obama administration disagreed with some policies of different departments that existed. What I can tell you this, which is I didn't agree with that policy, but I was brought in to put the kids back together with their parents. And that's something I was fully supportive of and was glad to do. There was a reporting feeding frenzy. I know because I was part of it. There were stories around the clock on cable news for weeks and weeks and weeks about this issue. From your perspective on the inside, what did the media get wrong? What did we miss? I think one, they continue to miss the fact that HHS didn't separate kids. HHS's job here was to care for kids that were deemed unaccompanied by DHS and DOJ. That was our job. Though those kids were separated by DHS. <laughs> yeah, they were separated by DHS, fair. But whether they were separated, in our view, our focus is on the kids and providing top quality care for those kids while they're the responsibility of HHS. And so HHS was not involved in the policy planning discussion on this. And what as far as I can tell, our focus was solely on how do we care for the kids that come into um, our responsibility and our custody. And so I think the media really missed the idea that, one, uh, HHS was not responsible for the family separations. HHS was only responsible for caring for those kids. And then we were given the additional task of having to put the kids back together with the parents when they had been separated. And so I think that... Um, there's been some criticism to go down. I mean, I even received hate mail at the office. Literally, I received a postcard addressed to me about, you know, you're an awful person and yada, yada, yada related to that. Was that in My the middle job of was this? Put, what? That was in the middle of all of this? Uh, it was shortly thereafter, yes. So I guess by the time the mail screening got done, it eventually got to me. But so I got hate mail too, you know? And all I was doing day in and day out was literally trying to put kids back together with their parents, which was something I think everyone or the vast majority of the people that were critical of the policy supported, right? They wanted the kids to get back with their parents, and yet that gets directed at me and gets directed at our secretary, those types of comments. And it's just inappropriate, and it's wrong. I, I talked to a number of HHS officials during this, and what they were upset about was that some of the images were not accurate. There were photos of things that were happening at DHS and uh, being blamed on HHS, cages of children that that was not HHS. Those were DHS facilities that the kids were being routed through, which as horrible to see, it was not accurate to say that those were HHS facilities. And also some of those had existed during the Obama administration and the media had not jumped on the issue at the time. So I, I think there were some media accuracy issues that I heard and, and legitimate concerns from your colleagues at HHS when I was covering these stories. I, I don't think we at Politico were trafficking in that as far as I can tell. But on those cable news shows, they showed up every night and it was a very easy way to attack some of the coverage. 
I don't dis- yeah, I don't disagree. I think there's HHS didn't separate the kids first and foremost. HHS's job was to put the kids back together with their parents, which we did in 30 days when they were at hundreds of locations across the country and the parents were at even more in different locations. Logistically speaking, it was incredibly difficult. And I know we're not going to get credit because you create, you know, one part of the administration creates a problem and then the people that fix it are not going to get credit for that. I understand. And we we don't need credit. We don't need a slap on the back, but we do need people to understand that we were focused on the care of those kids once they came into our custody. And getting them back, we did so in a really expeditious way that I don't think anyone thought was possible, myself included at the beginning of it. Hey, it's Dan Diamond, and we'll get back to my conversation with Chris Meekins in a moment. But first, a reminder that if you like Pulse Check, the podcast, you can get Pulse Check, the newsletter, in your inbox by signing up for a free subscription at politico.com slash politico pulse. It's your morning cheat sheet to what's happening in healthcare politics and policy, and we've given it a makeover just in time for 2019. That's Politico Pulse, the newsletter. And now let's get back to the conversation with Chris Meekins. We've talked a lot about the border crisis and your role there. So many other things going on at HHS that you were involved in. Let's talk about your more traditional work at ASPR, the part of HHS that coordinated the government's health response to natural disasters. So here's a sample scenario. A weather report comes in that a hurricane is forming off the coast of Florida. Walk through the steps that have to happen before the hurricane makes landfall. Walk through like what HHS would have to do. Sure. We have a lot of assets that are available to be used. One of the first things we do is we are in constant support and constant communication with the state and local governments about what their potential needs are, as well as working very closely with FEMA. So what do we do first? One thing is we activate what's called the National Disaster Medical System which includes doctors, nurses, paramedics, EMTs that are intermittent federal employees from around the country that are in teams, and we activate them, and then we can deploy them. For example, we deployed more than 4,000 personnel during Hurricanes Harvey, Irma, Maria, um, where we saw more than 36,000 patients and more than 900 tons of medical supplies and equipment. And, and sorry, when you say 4,000 personnel, are these all HHS staff or these coordinated? These are HHS employees, um, whether they're Public Health Service Corps or our NDMS intermittent federal employees. So doctors that may work at Mass General are willing to deploy on behalf of HHS to help their fellow Americans in need. So we do that, activate those folks. We also work with the local governments to determine whether or not a public health emergency would exist and they need additional waivers under CMS, 1135s, and other um, capabilities for flexibilities to take care of that. Additionally, we provide information. This is one of the most interesting parts of the programs we have. It's called an Empower program, which looks at the uses claims data from CMS to look at which individuals are dependent on electricity for durable medical equipment. We also look at dialysis patients to ensure patients are getting dialyzed immediately prior to the storm because one of the biggest threats you have after these storms is a patient not being able to access dialysis. And so we're able to go to those individuals and Urban Search and Rescue is able to go to those individuals and say, hey, get to somewhere where electricity, you'll have electricity going forward to make sure that their needs continue to be met. Um, There are dozens and dozens of other things that go on in that. 
um, it's actually a large portion of what we do, and I'm proud of the work that was done during the last storms. At which point does Secretary Azar get looped in, or does the president get informed? Is, is that halfway through the process, at the end? No, the secretary is involved usually every step of the way. So once a storm is forming, we'll give a heads up to his senior leadership, or he'll come into the secretary's operations center to get briefed on what the storm looks like, what the potential impact could be. We do a critical infrastructure check. We work closely with FDA to determine whether or not any shortages could be created. We work closely with CMS and the dialysis folks and really look at a coordinated response across the department. And this secretary, as someone who was at the department um, when Katrina had happened and helped form what now is my organization, ASPR, uh, is someone who's really committed to this public health preparedness and response and has been a huge champion of us. The Trump administration's response to hurricanes that hit Puerto Rico, that has been criticized. Uh, over a year later, the island is still reeling with some infrastructure challenges. There were considerable mental health challenges that have led to uh, suicide risk going up. What went wrong in Puerto Rico? I mean, I think there are a lot of different issues that have gone wrong, and I think you're going to see after actions from other folks looking into it. I think what I can tell you is what HHS did, and HHS had more than 150 personnel on the ground before the storm hit. These are people that rode out the storm in a hotel hallway uh, as Category 5 winds were plowing through the island at that point so that they would be there to assist immediately after the storm. Additionally, we uh, worked very closely with FEMA to ensure that the dialysis materials that were needed on the island were some of the first things that were brought in by planes. I think the devastation was greater than anyone thought possible. But what I will say is we saw more than 30,000 patients in Puerto Rico because the hospital systems needed additional help. Um, the infrastructure overall, bottom line is, if you don't have power, everything gets incredibly more complicated for hospitals and others because you have to provide fuel to generators, and that even became complicated on the island. There was one report of keeping the local dialysis centers open was a top priority. So we had worked with a private sector dialysis company that operates on the island and connected them with a private sector fuel company to ensure that every day the truck was going around and topping off every tank. Trucks were going around topping off the tanks. And that worked for a couple of days. And then all of a sudden we got a call saying, hey, the truck didn't show up today. Will I get my fuel tomorrow? Now, they still had enough to operate. And so we go and looked into it and the driver of the truck realized, hey, I'm just topping off these tanks. I've got all this extra fuel. I'll just sell it. So we literally had to put armed security with these truck drivers to make sure they actually did what needed to be done on the island. So there were a lot of different issues in Puerto Rico, um, but HHS was actively involved with the local officials there. And I think if you talk to the Secretary of Health, Health down there, he will praise the work that HHS did. Let's shift to biodefense. Asper plays a key role in national security, working to protect against superbugs, uh, smallpox attacks. What level of threat does the United States face right now from these sorts of biomedical risks? I think it's significant. And I think it's one of the areas that's most overlooked. The reality is we spend less than what it costs for ha to build half of an aircraft carrier on our biodefense and preparedness capabilities in the United States. How, how much is that? Put a number on that. It's less than $2 billion, basically, what so, we're spending at this point. chump change in terms of federal spending. Yeah, in the overall scheme of things. And that's for developing medical countermeasures. And in the history of the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority, we call it BARDA, it's a little easier, um, under ASPR, 
really focuses on how do we encourage private sector and how do we um, work with the private sector to develop medical countermeasures that oftentimes have no commercial market other than the government. Anthrax vaccine, people are not, well, except for the doomsday folks, are not really going out trying to buy anthrax vaccines on their own. But one of the greatest threats we've had, and people remember the anthrax attacks here in D.C., is anthrax. So the government has to be not just the developer, but also the purchaser and stockpiler of those things. And one of the big changes in the administration was that the strategic national stockpile, which is $7 billion worth of assets and a $600 million a year operating budget to help stockpile those things, moved from CDC to ASPR. That way we have really a coordinated approach to the biomedical research enterprise. You, you just glided by something that I wanted to ask you about, this strategic stockpile, which is yeah. something that many listeners might not know about. But again, this is like the emergency, mm -hmm. almost doomsday supply of vaccines and medicines. And the CDC always had control. And the Trump administration has moved to shift that to HHS. It was a pretty big political fight behind the scenes. Why is it better for Asper and HHS to control that stockpile and not the CDC? Well, I think the position of the administration is that Asper is the one that develops a medical countermeasure. Asper, through Project BioShield, initially purchases uh, the stockpile uh, materials before they get FDA approved. So it made sense that one person who is Senate confirmed, which at this point the CDC director is not, so someone that is accountable to Congress is responsible for developing, stockpiling, and continuing their procurements going forward of the stockpile. Additionally, it didn't make a lot of sense for us to have warehouses at Asper to do our medical supplies and the strategic national stockpile to have warehouses to do other things. When a disaster strikes and one of these situations will occur, Asper is the one that's going to be leading the response for the federal government and on the public health and medical side of things. And so it makes sense that they would have all the resources necessary under them to really execute that response at the very beginning of the process. So when there's a Hollywood movie that portrays the CDC responding as the frontline response, the, the, the TV show The Walking Dead, which I don't watch, but apparently the CDC plays, plays a role there. What you're saying is Asper and HHS actually assume a lot of those responsibilities. Yes. CDC has an important role to play, and there are great staff down there at the CDC in really the early detection of what's going on in the laboratory network that they operate. But at the end of the day, if you want doctors, nurses, paramedics to be able to supplement what's needed in giving communities, that's Asper's job. I had a conversation a few months ago with one of the inventors, or perhaps the inventor of Narcan, the recovery drug for people who are exposed to, to fentanyl and, and opioid overdose. And he was telling me that he was working on something with BARDA, with the federal government, mm -hmm. which confused me in, in the moment. Can you explain why the guy – I, I assume this is in your, in your bucket of things that you do. Why would the guy working on opioid response be worried about national security issues? So the Department of Homeland Security determined that fentanyls um, are a material threat to the United States. So if you go back um, a handful of years when uh, – Russians basically pumped in fentanyl gas into a movie theater to then, you know, try to kill terrorists that were in there um, and ended up killing a bunch of the people that were um, hostages at the time because they didn't get continue to give them the Narcan that needed to be done thereafter, the antidotes. It's very clear that fentanyls can be used by those that want to do us harm to negatively impact um, Americans. And so we've got to look for ways that not only um, – it's one of these areas where the public health need in opioids actually is also a biodefense need. 
And so how do we go about solving that problem, which allows BARDA to be involved in it? And so we are. And BARDA's got a great testament, 42 FDA approvals for medical countermeasures in a short, little over a decade history. As someone that came from finance and is going back to finance, if you tell me a hedge fund has supported companies that have gotten 42 FDA approvals in more than a decade, I'd say throw all your money at that hedge fund because BARDA is very good at what they do. There is a bad Ebola outbreak in the Congo and in, in Africa right now. Hundreds are dead. I recently reported on a possible Ebola patient, a U.S. doctor who was evacuated from the DRC to Nebraska. How worried should Americans be about Ebola? They shouldn't be as worried as they were in 2014 because we've made tremendous progress in both the Ebola therapeutics as well as the, as well as the Ebola vaccines through investments at NIH and also through BARDA, investing significant amounts of money in those therapeutics. So at this point, I believe that we're prepared and CDC will do a great job in early detection. And then we have a lot of hospital networks across the country that are able to treat Ebola patients. Um, so I'm not as worried about Ebola as I am many other things. Well, let's talk about those other things. Presumably, you've seen a list of the threats facing the nation. What keeps you up at night? Uh, well, I can't talk about the lists I might see. However, what I will say is uh, the H7N9 strain of the flu that's pandemic that's circulating in China is a great threat and I think could be a real problem going forward. I think the use of potential chemical weapons continues to be a threat here. And um, what the impact of fentanyls could be because they're so prevalent in so many places. I think that um, you always have to pay attention to anthrax just because it's so easy to relatively make at this point, and our enemies very publicly have done that. And then finally, you know, there are a lot of people that have nuclear weapons, and the question is what happens if that um, comes to the U.S. Historically, we've always fo only focused on kind of a terrorist using a dirty bomb, and now we have to focus on state actors. And that's a pretty big difference, too. So there's a lot that keeps me up at night. One of the things I'm looking forward to is uh, not knowing what I know now. You just left the administration. You said you're going back to finance. Is that a usual path for people coming out of HHS? Not to my knowledge. But my intent when I came in was to accomplish a very specific set of things, help make America more prepared than they were whenever I got there and came in, accomplished what I set out to do with Dr. Cadlick, who's a fantastic leader with an incredibly rich history and knowledge base. And uh, now it's time to go back. Was it hard to get a job as an ex-Trump official? No. Last question. HHS has pursued many policies the past two years, well beyond what we've talked about, Medicaid, work requirements, uh, changing hospital payment structures, and so on. How do you think, Chris, the Trump administration will be remembered on health care? I think in some ways, if you look at the policies that they're pursuing, and my focus predominantly was just on public health preparedness, and I had plenty to do. I didn't need to get involved in other things. Uh, I think if you look at the policies on value-based payment, I think if you look at the policies they're looking to take now and have taken on drug pricing, it's more than what people thought was going to occur. And in some ways, it's pretty consistent with health policy circles, what we need to move at this point, moving away from fee-for-service. You look at the secretary's top priorities, looking to tackle the opioid epidemic with Admiral Giroir, who's leading that and doing a great job, and hopefully will be turning the corner on those things. If you look at what his four priorities are, I think they would be mainstream for anyone who's working at HHS, regardless of whether a Democrat or a Republican was controlling um, the agency at that point. Some things may be adjusted, but the big priorities on drug pricing, value-based payment reform, uh, opioids are things that are pretty consistent mainstream. And I think when at the end of the day, 
uh, this secretary will be viewed as one of the most consequential ones at really advancing the ball down the field in many different healthcare areas. Well, we will see what the legacy is of this administration, Secretary Azar and NHHS. And thank you, Chris, for coming and, and taking questions on your run, which was not just the border issue, but also biodefense and so much more. Thanks, Chris Meekins. Thanks. That's it for Pulse Check this week. My thanks to Chris Meekins for making time for this interview and producers Mikaela Rodriguez and Dave Shaw for making the show happen. You can find Pulse Check on all of your favorite podcast apps. You can find me at ddiamond at politico.com and you can find a new episode of Pulse Check in your podcast player very soon.